Hey, good morning, and welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, Groups Minister here. Super excited to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. And we're going to talk about this uh, interesting and somewhat strange topic of spiritual warfare. But before we do that, we need to talk about Star Wars. Now, I like Star Wars because it's one of those things that, though it's kind of science fiction-y, you can like it without being considered nerdy. Jeff and I, though, like to make fun of Tim and Carl because Tim and Carl play a game called Dungeons and Dragons. Have you ever heard of this game? Let me describe it to you. It's basically a game you play when you don't have a date. Okay, that's all I really know about that game. Now, by the way, if you play that, I'm just kidding. Don't get mad, I'm just trying to keep you awake this morning. But we, Jeff and I, we like Star Wars. I fell in love with Star Wars when I was a little kid. So the original movies came out a long time ago and they re-released the movies in the 90s when I was in elementary school, and I loved it. I went and saw all the movies in theaters. I was you know, probably in the fourth grade, and I had a big crush on Princess Leia. My buddies and I would get together in the woods, and we would do Jedi training. That's what we would play as kids. If you've never seen Star Wars, a Jedi is like a weird priest with a laser sword. But what we would do is we would uh, play Jedi training in the woods, which consisted of two things. One, we'd just chase each other through the woods. I'm not sure that's good Jedi training, but don't judge us, you weren't there. The other thing we would do is we would get a stick and we would have our buddies shoot Nerf bullets at us and we would try to block it with the stick as if we had a lightsaber and we were trying to block lasers, okay? Now, if you became really confident, you would close your eyes and try to use the force to block those bullets. And you know what would happen? Nothing. You'd get shot in the neck because the force isn't real, okay? But that's what we played as kids. Really, really, really love Star Wars. Now, Star Wars is an interesting uh, movie concept because though there's all these things going on in the universe, there's, you know, there is the Empire fighting the Rebellion and there's people on their planets and people in their spaceships and all of that, there is a deeper spiritual reality that stands behind what's going on in Star Wars. It's the idea of the force. You've got the light side and you've got the dark side. And what's interesting is most people don't know about the Force. Most people are just going about their normal alien lives or whatever. But really, the battles that are going on in Star Wars are meant to be representative of a larger, more uh, spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes of the light versus the dark sides of the Force. Now, let me be clear. The Bible is not dualistic like Star Wars. It's not as though you have the light side and the dark side, and they're basically co-equal. You've got God, and you've got the devil, and mainly God's in charge, but every now and again, the devil gets in like a good right hook. That's not how it works biblically. Biblically, God is sovereign over all. To quote Luther, the devil is God's devil. You've got God at the top, and he's sovereign over good and evil. So that is not like Star Wars. But something that is like Star Wars is that behind the scenes of our normal daily lives is a deeper spiritual reality that a lot of us don't think about. And this text is going to bring that reality to the forefront, which is the idea of spiritual warfare. When God created everything, he created two kinds of moral creatures, humans and angels. Okay? What are angels? Angels are intelligent moral beings that don't have physical bodies. That's what an angel is. Okay? So God created other things that are not rational, plants and things like that, but he created humans and he created angels, both of which rebelled against God and the world became broken. When an angel rebels against God, we call that a demon. A demon is simply a rebellious angel. It is a fallen angel. It is an angel gone bad. 
And what you've got going on behind the scenes all the time in our daily lives is this spiritual battle going on between God and the forces of evil. Okay? So this text is going to get into that this morning. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we will look at some passages that talk about God, and then we will get into the text. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, uh, that you would bless and that you would help us. I just confess that all week I felt pretty attacked spiritually uh, preparing for this message, and so I pray right now that you would uh, guide us, that you would encourage anybody that is uh, afraid of this topic maybe or whatever it might be, that you would just send the Spirit and he would encourage us as we uh, dive into your word. We love you. We thank you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. When we think about God, we think of him in several different ways, right? So sometimes we think of him as creator, and he is. And the idea of him being creator is that he's sovereign, that he's powerful, etc. Other times we think of God as a father, which has the idea of relationship and love and things like that. Sometimes we think of God as a groom. He marries Israel in the Old Testament, or Christ marries the church in the New Testament. You have all these different images that are used in the Bible to describe what God is like. But one of the images that's used in the Bible all the time to describe God that we don't talk about very much in church is the idea of God as a warrior. The idea of God as a warrior. Let me read you a bunch of passages so that this really hits home. Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt. I'm gonna stop right there. I think they're gonna throw those up on the screen. There it is, boom. All right. See, there's spiritual warfare. I'm kidding. That's just somebody not clicking a button. Okay. Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So notice that God is not just judging the Egyptians. He's judging what the Egyptians worship, false gods, i.e. demons. There's only one God, so when you worship something that's not that one Trinitarian God of Orthodox Christianity, you're worshiping a demon. Exodus 15.3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Deuteronomy 32, 41 through 42. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives. Psalm 7, 12 through 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet. That means to sharpen. God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. He's like William Wallace or something, or Maximus. He's yelling around with a sword. Isaiah 59, 17, and talking about God judging evil. Look at this passage in light of what we read in Ephesians. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Jeremiah 20, 11, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, all of these are passages out of the Bible describing God as a warrior. I want to share one more passage with you that's not in the Bible. I'm not saying it should be in the Bible. It actually comes out of a piece of Jewish literature called the Wisdom of Solomon. 
And the reason I'm sharing it with you is to show you how Jews would have conceived of God as a warrior around the time of the writing of Ephesians. Let me read it to you. Wisdom of Solomon 5, 16 through 21. Therefore, they will receive a glorious crown and a beautiful diadem from the hand of the Lord, because with his right hand he will cover them, and with his arm he will shield them. The Lord will take his zeal as his whole armor and will arm all creation to repel his enemies. He will put on righteousness as a breastplate and wear impartial justice as a helmet. He will take holiness as an invincible shield and sharpen stern wrath for a sword, and creation will join with him to fight against his frenzied foes. Shafts of lightning will fly with true aim and will leap from the clouds to the target as from a well-drawn bow. Here's what these passages are basically saying. The storyline of the Bible is a storyline of war. That is part of the gospel message. That there is one God who has created everything, but both angels and humans have rebelled against God, and that's why everything is broken. Why is the world bad if we have a good creator? And the answer is, is because we've walked away from him and everything became broken. And so what God does as a warrior is he conquers his enemies, redeems his people, and anybody that's willing to lay down their weapons and join his kingdom is forgiven of their sins, is made whole, is made new, is granted a full pardon. When Jesus is in his earthly ministry, he is launching an act of war against the devil. That's what he's doing. He's not just doing cool magic tricks. When he casts out a demon, that's an act of war against the devil. When he heals the sick, that's an act of war against the devil. When he teaches true doctrine instead of false doctrine, that is an act of war against the devil. And so what we see in this passage is that God is a warrior fighting against his enemies. And so we are called as Christians, as soldiers of God's army, to strap on our armor and to fight against the enemy. That's what this passage is about. Let's get into verse 10. Verse 10. Finally. Paul is going to give his last series of commands here in the book of Ephesians. Next week, we will finish up the book of Ephesians, and then we will jump into Proverbs. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's break this down on each part. First of all, he says this, Be strong in whom? Who? The Lord and the strength of his might. Here's the first thing you need to know about spiritual warfare, spiritual attack, growing in holiness, any of it. It's this. You do not resist the enemy by being strong in your own strength. You resist the enemy by resting in Jesus. You resist the enemy by being strong in the Lord. He does it all. His strength is perfected in our weakness. Faith is not striving. Faith is resting. You are the strongest against the enemy when you are trusting and you are dependent on Christ, not in your own strength. You see, we raise our kids to be less dependent on us as they get older. God raises his adopted kids to be more dependent on him as we grow in the faith. And so the first thing you need to realize about this text is the way you're going to stand against the schemes of the enemy is not by you trying harder. It's by you realizing what God has already done for you in Christ, period. That's it. That's it. Listen. So I, uh, I've been skiing a few times. Last time I went skiing, I decided that I wanted to try snowboarding, okay? I like skiing, but I don't like that there are four things to control. So you've got to ski on each foot, and you have a pole, and all of them want to go in different directions. And so every time I ski, I feel like, like a baby giraffe learning how to walk, and I hate it, okay? Then if you go in somewhere, you have those little ski shoes that are bent, and you can't walk normally, and you look like an idiot waving at people. I don't like that, okay? So I decided that, you know what? I want to try snowboarding 
because I'll only have one thing to control. It'll be so much easier. Well, here's what I learned. Snowboarding is way harder to learn than skiing, okay? Way harder. I was falling so much on the snowboard that if, if, I, if I felt like I was about to fall, I would just go ahead and go limp and loosen my body so it wouldn't hurt so bad. So I'd just be going down the mountain and be like, oh, and I'd just flop like a rag doll and then someone skied into me. It was an awful experience, okay? On one run, one run down the mountain, I counted that I fell 30 times, okay? Three zero. I would hit, I'd hear my back crack. I'm like, can I feel my toes? I think so, let's keep going. And I, that's, that was my snowboarding experience, okay? Here's what I learned about snowboarding. The more you try to fight a snowboard, the more you try to resist in your own strength, the more you bite it, the more you fall, the more you wipe out. What you have to do is you have to let the snowboard do the work. You have to put all your weight in the snowboard. You have to let it lead and you relax. You go with its leadership and you don't try to resist that or it cuts the edge in the snow and you break your neck, okay? That's the idea here. The way that you resist the enemy is not by in your own strength. It is by throwing yourself on the mercy of Jesus. It is by resting in him. It is by resting in his finished work. Christianity is not so much something you do, it's something that you are. So that's the first thing he wants to say. By the way, when I talk about in this sermon being attacked by the devil, I don't mean the devil himself, all right? He probably has bigger fish to fry than you or I. I mean his helpers, demons, his minions, these kind of things, okay? So he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Look at this, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Here's what I've learned in getting ready to study this, or getting ready to preach this passage. Putting on the armor of God and putting on Jesus himself are the exact same thing. When the Bible would tell you to clothe yourself with Jesus or to put on Jesus, to put off the old man and to put on Christ, that means the exact same thing as putting on the armor of God. When I first started studying this passage, I assumed that the different pieces of armor that are going to be mentioned in this text were all completely different. That the truth, the belt of truth was different than the shield of faith. The more I've studied, the more I'm convinced that all these pieces of armor that we're told to put on are really the same thing, which is Jesus, which is the hope of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us. Right? So you put on the belt of truth. That's not random truth like two plus two equals four. That's the truth of the gospel. And we put on our feet the readiness of the gospel. And we lift up the shield of faith, which is faith in the gospel. And we put on the helmet of salvation because we've been saved through the gospel. All these pieces of armor are pointing to the same reality, which is this. That the way we stand against the lies and condemnations of the enemy is by realizing that we are in Christ. Our union with Christ is our weapon against the enemy. Now this next part says this. Put on the whole armor of God. He's going to now give you the reason that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. So we're told to put on spiritual armor to resist the devil's schemes. So here's what I want to do. I want to list several of the ways that the enemy will attack us and several things that we can do that open ourselves up to attack so that we can be on guard against the enemy's schemes. If you're a note taker, you're gonna to wanna to write these down because this is how the enemy works. If I was going to war, I would want to know everything about the country I was going to war with. I'd wanna know how many troops they have. I wanna know whether or not they have nuclear weapons. I wanna know whether or not they've lost battles in the past. I wanna know everything about their tactics so I can defend against it. So this text says to be on guard for the devil's schemes. So let me tell you what some of his schemes are. Number one, lying. 
lying. He is called the liar and the father of lies. You speak English, he speaks lie. That's what he does, okay? And he is an excellent liar because what he will do is he will mix a little bit of truth with that lie to make the lie more convincing. You see, when God speaks, his speech is pure. It's 100% pure and perfect. So if there's a little bit of lie in it, that's not speech from God. The enemy takes a little bit of truth and a little bit of lie to make the lie more convincing. He's, he's crafty. He's smart. When my son tries to trick us, so he's two years old, and he's at the age where he's trying to deceive us and trick us, he is not a very good liar, okay? So the other day, he was standing on the couch, and he knows he's not supposed to do that, and so I figured, you know what? I'm going to give him a warning. So I knelt down by the couch, and I said, Judah, are we supposed to stand on the couch? And he said, hi, Daddy, because he was trying to distract me. He was trying to be cute. I'm like, listen, you don't hi daddy me. Are we supposed to be standing on the couch? And then he said, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. I'm like, what? No, you, you don't get to determine that. I get to determine that, right? That's not what the enemy does. The enemy is crafty. You don't see it coming, okay? He's smart. And one of the things the enemy will do with his lies is he will ask you questions to try to trip you up for things that you do know. When he comes to Eve in the garden, he doesn't say, hey, why don't you eat of this fruit and all of humanity can become condemned? He goes to Eve and he says, did God really say not to eat of any tree of the garden? And she thinks, well, I, I thought he said not to eat of this tree, but now that you're asking me that question, I'm not sure. That's what the enemy will do. He will ask you questions. God's not asking you questions. God knows everything. But he will say things like this. Are you really a Christian? If you were a Christian, would you still struggle with the things that you struggle with? What do you think that person at church thinks about you? Those kind of questions to trip you up for truths you already know. Number two. He'll disguise himself to make himself look good. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What does the devil look like? I think when we have a tendency to think about the devil, we have a tendency to think of this like cartoonish kind of torchies tacos, which are delicious, by the way, kind of devil figure, right? He's got red skin, which is kind of like hell camouflage or something. And he's got horns. He's got this weird like French mustache, kind of looks like Dracula. He's got a pointy tail, and he always has a big pitchfork. I don't know why. I don't know why he has a pitchfork, but he has a pitchfork. That is not what the enemy looks like because nobody's tempted to follow that. The enemy appears as a wolf in sheep's clothing. The devil is most at work when you don't realize that he's there. He wants to look seductive. He wants to look beautiful. He'll even take good things and twist them, words like love or tolerance or acceptance, and make them love for what is evil and tolerance for what is evil and acceptance for what is evil. That's what he does. He twists. Number three, he teaches false doctrine. He teaches false doctrine. Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You have major religions, Mormonism and Islam, where a quote-unquote angel came to give new doctrine. Those angels are called demons. That's what they do, all right? They promote false doctrine. Nothing is more dangerous than false doctrine because it gets you to see God in a way that's not biblical. When the gospel says you can rest, the enemy will say to try harder. When the gospel says you are forgiven, he will say you are not. When the gospel says there is hope for you, he will say there is only despair. When the gospel says God loves you, he will say that God is frustrated with you. He promotes false doctrine. Number four, this is a big one. The enemy uses condemnation, accusation, and guilt. Condemnation, accusation, and guilt. The name Satan means enemy. The name devil means accuser. This is what he does. His whole job is to condemn you over and over and over again. He can't actually
actually condemn you if you're a Christian. You are already saved by Christ. So he will do the next best thing, which is to make you feel condemned. If you've ever thought thoughts like, God doesn't love you, you're not a Christian, you're going to hell, you're fat, you're dumb, you're stupid, you're ugly, you're never going to get out of this, you're never going to get through this despair, that is the condemnation of the enemy. That's what he does. He says things about you that would be true if you didn't know Christ. But because you know Christ, they're not true. His whole goal is to get you to question your identity. Your identity is, if you're a Christian, is that you're in Christ. You're perfect. You're loved. You're spotless. And his whole modus operandi is to try to keep you from believing that. When you commit a sin as a Christian and God is convicting you, there's a sweetness to it. It makes you want to run to Jesus. When the enemy condemns you, it's this dark, heavy weight that makes you want to run away from Jesus. He condemns he condemns us day and night. He, condemnation, accusation, and guilt are weapons of the devil. Let me give you a few more. Temptation. Temptation. The devil shows up to tempt Jesus. Now, let me be clear on this one. 99.9% .9 of the time you're tempted, it's just because we're broken sinners. That's why, okay? So if a beautiful woman walks by who's not your wife and you're tempted to look at her, that's not the devil. That's you, okay? But somehow... The devil can be involved in temptation, whether it's maybe planting a thought in your mind, maybe it's setting up a circumstance. You just got in a fight with your wife, and it seems like the next day when you go to work, that's when the secretary comes and flirts with you. The enemy is somehow involved in temptation. Number six, division. The devil loves division. God loves for his church to be unified. He loves for Christians to be unified. The devil loves dividing Christians. So if you've ever loved, left church and you thought to yourself, man, I don't really like those people. I don't really like that guy. I bet the leadership of this church doesn't love us. And you started having those thoughts. You might be attacked. You might be being attacked. Number seven, sickness, pain, and death. Sickness, pain, and death. Again, let me clarify on this one. <clears throat> Everybody look at me. This is important. I, here's one of my big fears I have, is that you leave this sermon and all of a sudden you start thinking demons control everything, okay? They don't. God controls everything. So don't become the demon under every rock guy. You know what I'm talking about? Where like, I've met people like this where their car breaks down and it must have been the car demon, right? Or they're going to work and they step in a piece of gum and, you know, a demon must have put the gum on the, the, the sidewalk. Or you buy some bananas and they get old and moldy and that was the old moldy banana demon, something like this. No, okay? 99.99999% of the time when you get sick, it's because you live in a broken, fallen world. That's just what happens. But biblically speaking, sometimes sickness, chronic pain, these kind of things can be a spiritual attack. Job is made sick by the devil who gives him boils. Paul has a thorn in the flesh, a, quote, messenger of Satan to torment him. So again, the, the error comes in thinking that every time something bad happens, it's spiritual attack, or thinking that anytime something bad happens, it's never spiritual attack. It's sometimes spiritual attack, okay? And then number eight, distracting you from Jesus, distracting you from Jesus. The devil wants you to have your primary focus be anything other than Jesus. He doesn't care if it's on self-improvement. He doesn't care if it's on you trying not to sin. He doesn't care if it's good things, your family, your friends, your job, whatever it is. The one thing he does not want is he does not want you thinking about Jesus. I have found that if you struggle with uh, kind of depression and anxiety, most of your thoughts are about how you can get out of the depression and anxiety instead of on Jesus, the one person who can actually get you out of it. 
And so the enemy wants you to think about anything, focus on anything other than your one source of strength, which is actually Jesus, okay? So he distracts, he distracts. Now, let me mention six ways you can open yourself up to spiritual attack, and then we will get back into this text. I'm having to take a little hiatus to talk about this, kind of like Jeff had to last week to talk about slavery, just because this is a big topic. Let me mention some things you can do that open yourself up to get spiritually attacked. Number one is this, if you're walking in pride, Multiple times the Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want God's grace, be humble. If you want God to try to take you, walk in pride. In mentioning the requirements of an elder, 1 Timothy 3.6 says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Pride opens you up for spiritual attack. Number two, unforgiveness and bitterness open you up to spiritual attack. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, okay? If you have unforgiveness and bitterness towards another person, that is a hole in your spiritual armor that the enemy can send an arrow into, okay? Number three, now this one's super weird. I'm gonna show you this one. As I was getting ready to prepare for this lesson, this one popped out. I thought it was very, very strange, but it's something the Bible says, so I'm gonna mention it. Another way that you can open yourself up to spiritual attack is if you are married and you are failing to provide for your spouse in the area of intimacy, the Bible says that your marriage can get attacked. Let me show you the verses here. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. We're going to throw them up on the screen. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, it's got to be mutual, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan, there it is, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's what the Bible says. If you are married, sex is spiritual warfare. It's not you versus your spouse. It's you and your spouse versus the enemy, okay? This text is saying something very strong. It is saying that if you do not provide for your spouse in the area of intimacy, I know of a devil who will. There's an old saying that goes, before you're married, the devil will do whatever he can to get you and your significant other in bed together. After you're married, he will do whatever he can to keep you and your significant other out of bed with each other. That's what the enemy does. Now, let me be clear on something. This is really important. If your spouse struggles with some type of sexual sin, that is not your fault. You need to hear me. Okay? If your spouse struggles with some type of sexual sin, that is not your fault. But what this text is saying is that you can help them. You can fight on their side against the enemy and not make them the enemy. You can make it easier for them to obey God's commands. But this text says this is one of the ways where the devil will step in. Where the devil will step in. Number four, walking in hard-hearted, unrepentant sin. If you walk in unrepentant sin, it opens you up to spiritual attack. I'll tell you a little story. I had a a buddy of mine when I was in college, and uh, he probably had a two-year-old, three-year-old daughter, and she was waking up in the middle of the night, screaming, night terrors, nightmares every night. And so he was talking to his grandmother on the uh, the phone, and he was telling her about these night terrors, and his grandmother said to him, she said, "I, I feel like I'm supposed to ask you this question, are you looking at pornography? And he said, yes. And he repented, and the night terrors went away. Now, again, Don't get weird with this. A lot of times when your kids have nightmares, they just had nightmares, okay? They got a bad piece of chicken, it's too hot in the house, they had nightmares. Sometimes, though, when you're walking in unrepentant sin, it'll open you up for spiritual attack. 
Number five, being involved in anything demonic, okay? If you're a part of another religion, you play with an Ouija board, fortune-telling, tarot cards, any new age kind of Oprah, Rob Bell spirituality, which is really just recycled Hinduism, karma, these kind of things, non-Christian spiritual experiences, etc., that opens you up for spiritual attack. And then lastly, and then we'll actually get back into our text, I want to give you an acronym for the times, a lot of times when you will feel spiritually attacked by the enemy. The acronym is STABS, S-T-A-B-S. Here's what it stands for. When you're stressed, tired, alone, bored, or after a spiritual high. That's when you're the most susceptible to spiritual attack. When you're stressed, tired, alone, bored, or right after a spiritual high. If I share the gospel with somebody, I feel super excited for like 15 minutes, and then I feel super condemned because the enemy's trying to cut my legs out from under me. These are things you can do that open yourself up to spiritual attack. By the way, when I say spiritual attack, don't think of something fantastic. Don't think of like a, a demon running out of the woods and trying to grab you and taking your shoe or something weird like that. What I mean are little thoughts that pop into your mind that are condemning, that are tempting, that cause you to question your identity as a Christian. Okay? Verse 12. Those are the schemes of the enemy. So now verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. By the way, when it says we don't wrestle here, don't think like WWE, okay? Don't think Hulk Hogan. Don't think hitting somebody with a folding chair. The idea of wrestle within a military context is close hand-to-hand -hand fighting. If you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, don't watch it with your kids, but if you've ever seen it, there is a scene where there is a Nazi with a knife over a guy, and they are fighting for that knife. That's the imagery that's used here in Ephesians. The enemy hates you because God loves you. He wants to put that knife in your heart. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, look at the four names given here, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All four of those references in Judaism are references to demons, okay? Here's what this text is saying. If you are a Christian, you do not have enemies that wear skin. Our enemies are demonic. As Christians, we don't have enemies that are humans. In fact, if you have a human who is an enemy, the Bible would say that you love your enemies, you pray for those who persecute you, you turn the other cheek. Our ultimate enemies are something beyond that. They're something spiritual. The ultimate problem in the world is something spiritual. There's something bigger going on behind the scenes that we don't think about a lot. When a government kills millions of their own citizens innocently, there's something demonic about that, okay? When a mom drowns her kids in the bathtub or someone shoots up a school, there's something demonic about that. When Planned Parenthood kills millions of black people and nobody cares, there's something demonic about that. When there's a whole huge porn industry that are just wrecking the world, there's something demonic about that. Our ultimate enemies are not people. They're demonic. They're demonic. As Christians, the government has enemies that are people. According to Romans 13, that's fine. If the U.S. government wants to send soldiers to fight ISIS, that's fine. But in our role as Christians, our ultimate enemies are spiritual. They're not physical. 2 Corinthians 10.4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse 13. Therefore, since we have, a spiritual, uh, since we have spiritual enemies, verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. When is the evil day? It's any time 
that you're getting spiritually attacked. Yes, there's a sense in which we live in the end, so the evil day is now. Yes, there's a sense in which we will experience more persecution as Christians in the future. But here where it says that you may be able to stand in the evil day, I think the idea is whenever the enemy comes to attack you. And having done all to stand firm. Look at verse 14. Stand, therefore. That's the main command here in this verse. All the other ways where we're told to put on this armor are simply ways that you stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Let me show you some other verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 7, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then Hebrews 4, 12, speaking of Jesus as the word of God, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because we have spiritual enemies... We are to put on spiritual armor. Now, when you think of spiritual armor, don't think of like a medieval knight, okay? When I think of armor, I think of like a knight riding a horse, Camelot, all these kind of things. The image here of spiritual armor comes from two places with Paul. One, it comes from the Old Testament, God's armor that he wears. Two, it comes from the Roman army that he would have been familiar with in his day. So when you think of a shield, think of a Roman shield or something like that, okay? And three things are mentioned here, and then he's going to mention a few more. The first is that we put on truth. Do you know why? Because the devil is a liar. The way that we fight his lies is with the truth of the gospel. We put on a breastplate of righteousness, which in this context means that you walk in righteousness. When you repent and trust in Jesus, God declares you to be 100% perfect, 100% righteous, 100% forgiven. No matter what you've done, you go from being a sinner to, in God's eyes, being a spotless, perfect saint because you are in Christ. And then you spend the rest of your life learning to be what you already are, learning to practice what's already been declared about you. You are righteous by God's declaration, and therefore you walk in righteousness, not the other way around. And so because God has declared us to be righteous, we are to walk in righteousness, to put on a breastplate of righteousness, to not walk in righteousness, to walk in unrepentant sin, is to open yourself up to spiritual attack. And then number three, it says this, verse 17. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. And then he mentions readiness that comes through the gospel of peace. That's what we're to put on our feet. There's a sense in which we stand in the gospel. The gospel is our foundation. We don't just run to the gospel for salvation. We keep running to the gospel for the rest of our lives for everything. But this passage also contains the idea that one of the ways that we fight against the enemy is through evangelism, is through sharing Jesus with others, is by moving people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son through telling them about the gospel, through telling them about Jesus. It is the work of every Christian soldier, not just ministers, to be sharing the gospel and in that way pushing back against the kingdom of darkness, pushing back against the kingdom of darkness. Romans 10:15 says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I want to read you a quick quote here before we get into verse 16. I, if you're asking yourself, why is that talking so fast? Two reasons. One, that's who I am. I can't do otherwise. Okay. I have a lot to say and I don't have a lot of time. Number two, I'm already sort of going over time. So bear with me, bear with me. 
There's a New Testament scholar named Frank Thielman, and here's what he says about putting on this spiritual armor. It's not a quote, so you can just hear me read it. It is a quote. You can hear me read it. It's not on the screen. (laughs) He depicts this imitation of God in terms of the final eschatological battle in a war that has largely already been won. Before the time of final victory, God's people must strap on the armor that in the Old Testament belongs to Yahweh and his Messiah, and taking their stand on what God has already done for them in the gospel, they must act as God would act in truth and righteousness. Paul goes on in verse 16. He's going to continue listing this armor. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows or flaming darts of the evil one. Here's the idea. In antiquity, in ancient warfare, what they would do is they would dip their arrows in fire and they would launch them at you. And when those arrows on fire hit your shield, they catch your shield on fire. They'd hit the ground, they'd catch, it scatter your troops, it would scare the animals, it would burn up your supplies, it caused a lot of damage. And so what the Roman legionnaires would do, what Roman soldiers would do, is they would take their shields and they would cover them in leather and they would soak that leather in water before a battle. That way, as those flaming arrows came, they'd hit that shield and put out that arrow, and it wouldn't catch their shield on fire. That's the imagery that Paul is using for standing against the schemes of the enemy. All day, the devil is like this. Condemnation. Accusation. Temptation. All day. And the way that those are to be resisted is by a shield of faith. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel. Faith in the gospel. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So here are three more things that we're told to do in addition to praying, okay? We're to lift up the shield of faith. Again, faith in the gospel. Now, here's good news for you. If you don't feel like you have a lot of faith, that's okay. You'll grow in faith over your lifetime. Maybe you don't have enough faith to lift the shield of faith at this time in your life. Maybe you just need to kind of lay under it. That's okay. But it is faith in the gospel that resists the condemnations of the devil. We're also told that we have a helmet of salvation. The enemy wants to condemn you. He wants to say, you're not a Christian. You're going to hell. You're not pure. You're not clean. God doesn't love you. How could you do this if you were still a Christian? And so you guard your mind. You put on a helmet of salvation. You remind yourself, I am saved. I am loved. I am forgiven. I am pure. And then he mentions, now for the first time, the first offensive weapon in this list. Everything else has been defensive. He now lists an offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit. That means the sword that's given by or empowered by the Spirit. That's called a genitive of source. The Spirit is the one that empowers that sword. The sword itself is the Word of God. There is a sense in which the Word of God and a way you can fight the enemy is the Scriptures. Okay? When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the devil, he quotes Scripture back at him. But in this context where he says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, most often this phrase, Word of God, especially with the Greek word that's used here for word is used, it means a proclamation of the gospel. So when the Bible says preach the word, it means preach the gospel. The way we fight against the devil is through, again, the gospel. The gospel. Look at verse 18. We're almost done. Praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie between you and God. Prayer is how you put on your spiritual armor. It's how you don it, okay? It's through prayer. And so we're told to pray at all times in the Spirit, which means the Spirit stands by the side of believers to prompt them to pray, 
to direct them uh, whom to pray for and how to pray, as well as to energize them in praying for themselves and others. It's a quote from a New Testament scholar named Clinton Arnold. The idea is that you put on the spiritual armor and you beg God to protect, to help, to guide, to fight on your behalf. That's what this text is saying, okay? So, if you are feeling spiritually attacked, here's what this text is going to say. Put on spiritual armor. Hold fast to what is true, you put on a belt of truth. You know you're righteous, so you walk in righteousness. That's a breastplate of righteousness. You preach the gospel to yourself and others. You have faith to believe the truths of Scripture, so you lift that shield of faith. You remember that you are saved and loved by God, and so you use His Word to fight against the enemy and to protect yourself. Okay? So, let's, let's talk about practically what spiritual warfare looks like as a Christian. Okay? If you're a Christian, there are times where the enemy will pop little thoughts into your head that make you feel condemned, that make you feel depressed, that make you feel tempted, that make you feel whatever it is. These different things we've seen that happen in the Bible, okay? How do you practically fight against the enemy when you are being spiritually attacked, okay? The first thing you need to know is you don't have to do anything weird, okay? I meet a lot of people that are overly interested in this topic, and they think that you've got to say some sort of mantra or they're, they're yelling, they're like, get out of here, devil. And I'm like, is, is he hard of hearing? And they're doing all these weird things, okay? You don't have to do anything weird. You don't have to buy silver bullets. You don't have to buy garlic. You don't have to buy a crossbow and become blade and go vampire hunting. You don't have to do any of that. Here's simply what you do if you're feeling attacked by the enemy, okay? Ready? It's, it's three steps. Number one, you repent of any known sin in your life. You can't remember all your sins. That's okay. But anything that you know, I'm just, man, I'm walking in un unrepentance here. You repent of any known sin in your life. Unrepentant sin opens you up for attack. Number two, you put your faith in Christ. You put your faith in the gospel. You remind yourself of the truths of Scripture. And number three, you ask Jesus to help you. Why would you talk to a demon? Do you want to talk to a demon? Talk to Jesus. He's more powerful. We like talking to him. Repent of any known sin. Put your faith in the gospel. Remind yourself of the truths of the gospel because the enemy is lying to you in that moment and ask Jesus to help you. Ask him to help you. So here's what it looks like. If you're feeling condemned, you're feeling anxious, step one, repent of sin in your life. Step two, remind yourself of the gospel. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to worry. God loves me. He's in control. Everything's gonna be okay. I'm not going to hell. Jesus has saved me. Step three, Jesus, would you help me? I need your help. I'm feeling attacked. Would you protect me? Or maybe you're feeling, uh, you're feeling condemned. You're feeling uh, like you're in despair, that you're never going to get out of it. Repent of any known sin in your life. Remind yourself of the truths of Scripture. I am going to get through this. God is going to sustain me. His mercies are new every morning. He will give me the strength. Or maybe you're feeling overwhelmingly tempted. Repent of any known sin. Remind yourself of the truths of the gospel, that the pleasure that Jesus promises long-term is better than the fleeting pleasures of sin, and ask Jesus to help. That's the, those are the steps. Repent of sin. Put your faith in the gospel. Ask Jesus for help. The way you do spiritual warfare is the same way you got saved, through repentance and faith and crying out to Jesus. Same way. Same way. What's interesting to me is that in all that the Bible says about spiritual warfare, it doesn't give us mantras and all these formulas or you know, witchcrafty things we have to do when we're feeling spiritually attacked, it gives us this simple command. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
and he will flee from you. That's it. That's it. Verses 18b through 20. Let's finish this off. And then Jeff will be back next weekend to finish Ephesians 18b through 20. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here's what Paul is saying. While you're praying, pray for other Christians. And to his original audience, he's saying, would you guys also pray for me? And he asked for prayer that he would proclaim the gospel boldly, okay? Paul is not praying that he would remember what the gospel is. He knows the gospel very well. Paul is going to have to stand before government officials and talk about Jesus. And the temptation, anytime you do that, is to water certain things down that seem offensive. And so what Paul is saying is, pray that I don't do that, that I don't water it down. In our culture, there are certain facets of Christianity that, is, that are very, very offensive, and we cannot water it down. We just have to say it like the Bible says it. Now, we don't need to be unnecessarily mean. I want you to be a velvet-covered hammer. That's what I want you to be, delivering the truths of the gospel and not shaking on those things, but doing it in words that are kind and acts that are gracious. But what Paul prays here is, pray that I wouldn't capitulate. Pray that I wouldn't be a coward. That's what he's praying. Now, let me tell you a little story involving demons, and uh, then we'll be done. How about that? Okay? Let me tell you a story involving Jeff Ashley and demons. Okay, so uh, there was a time where Jeff Ashley was pastoring at another church, and there was a lady who came in who very much felt spiritually oppressed. Now, to be fair, she had been involved in these satanic cults and witchcraft and these kind of things, so she was kind of asking for that, right? She kind of opened herself up for that. And so she was feeling very, very spiritually oppressed. And so she sat down to, to chat with some pastors about Jesus. And Jeff came in and he said, hi, my name's Jeff. And they had never met. And she said, I know who you are, Ooh, which is already scary. Just like, you know who I am? We've never met. She said, the demons told me not to talk to you because you see things as black and white. How about that? The devil likes to play in the gray. The truths of God's word are meant to be understood. They're a way we can fight against the enemy. What the enemy wants us to do is to question those things and think maybe they're not really true. And so it was interesting that this woman was, had been told by these demons or whatever, I don't know what that looks like, but that's what she said, to stay away from Jeff because he saw things as black and white. That's a commendation to Jeff, that he has been faithful to just say what the Bible says. That's what Paul is praying here. May I not make what's black and white gray. May I boldly proclaim the gospel. Now... In conclusion, don't freak out or think anything weird or something like that, okay? Don't leave here. Just now all of a sudden you hear a creak in your house and you're like, get out of here, demon. That's not what's going on, okay? What I want you to realize, though, is that spiritual warfare is real. We don't talk about it much. We don't think about it much. Going on behind the scenes, there are things that are going on. The way that you're protected, though, is by walking with Christ. If you're a Christian, you cannot be demon-possessed. You're already possessed by the Holy Spirit, and he will not have any other tenants in his uh, residency, all right? You don't need to be afraid. The reason we're afraid of demons is because of Hollywood. In the Bible, there's not a whole lot with fear. When it comes to demons in the Bible, it's more of an annoyance. They're more there to trip people up and try to hinder the gospel. The reason we're afraid of them is mainly because of Hollywood. So let me end with this encouraging thing. The demons in the Bible are terrified of Jesus. Jesus shows up and they say, are you here to hurt us yet? That's what they say. That's a paraphrase, but that's basically what they say, okay? 
My little joke is when we want to watch a scary movie, we get together and watch a scary movie about demons. When demons want to get together and watch a scary movie, they watch The Passion, okay? The Passion of Christ. That's what terrifies them. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Let's pray as the men come forward to distribute the elements for communion. Father, I thank you that you're good and that you do good and that you love us. I thank you for sending Christ who has uh, come that he might, quote, destroy the works of the devil. And uh, I thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that preserves us, that protects us, that keeps us safe. So I pray for anybody in here. I just, I don't know where everybody's at on these topics. Some people, I'm afraid, will leave and be overly interested in this area. Other people will leave and never think about this area again. And so I just pray that wherever somebody is, that you would just minister to them, that you'd encourage them, that you'd help them with whatever they're dealing. I pray for anybody in here who is uh, feeling spiritually attacked. Perhaps they constantly feel condemned. They constantly feel guilt. They constantly feel these things, even though they've been forgiven by Christ. Would you let them be aware that that's just the enemy? that the devil's lies do not become more true just because he yells them louder. And so I pray that you'd be with us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.